So it's been just a couple weeks since Francis Ngannou took the world by storm with his incredible knockout of Alistair Overeem. The power he displayed was truly breathtaking, and as a result, he is now fighting Stipe Miocic at UFC 220 in Boston for the undisputed heavyweight championship of the world. At this point in time, the victor will arguably be the greatest heavyweight on the planet. But it wasn't always that way in the UFC. Since the first heavyweight championship was crowned all the way back at UFC 12, the heavyweight's title journey became unbelievably unpredictable. That's what I'm here to discuss today. I'm Jason from MMA on Point, and this is called the Lineal Heavyweight Belt's Insane Journey to Stipe Miocic. Chapter 1 formation. So let's do a quick recap of how the first UFC heavyweight belt came to be. It all essentially started with quote-unquote super fights. In the beginning, the UFC was a series of one-night tournaments, but as fans' appetite for certain fights became louder, the first super fight was booked with a rematch between Hoist Gracie and Ken Shamrock at UFC 5. This was the first time that the promotion had booked a single match, entirely separate from their one-night tournaments. And from here, the super fights continued. Unfortunately, half of them were disappointments, as many of them went to draws, were handicapped like at UFC 9 when a judge ruled that no closed fist punches could be delivered between Dan Severn and Ken Shamrock. Essentially slap fighting. It's one of the strangest matches you'll ever see. But by the end of it, Dan Severn managed to eke out a decision win. This made him the super fight champion, which was still the only belt the UFC had at that time. Meanwhile, Mark Coleman had recently debuted and was running through competition winning two tournaments back-to-back -back at UFC 10 and UFC 11. So when UFC 12 came around, the first heavyweight championship belt was on the line. It was the super fight champ in Dan Severn versus the undefeated tournament champ in Mark Coleman. And it didn't take long for Coleman to neck crank the hell out of Dan Severn, getting it done in just three minutes. And just like that, the UFC had its first heavyweight champion. And no doubt it was exactly what you would have expected. The big muscly guy won. But this is where it gets really weird. Going into his next bout with Murray Smith at UFC 14, Coleman was the overwhelming favorite. Smith had an awful 5-7 record, but he ultimately had the better strategy, essentially tying up Coleman to such an extent on the ground that he completely gassed out. And by the end of it, Smith managed to dominate the fight by picking apart Coleman on the feet. As I've mentioned in previous videos, it's one of the most shocking upsets in MMA history. But of course, this was just the beginning of the twists and turns to come as he would lose shortly after at UFC Japan against Randy Couture. With that win, Couture was undefeated at the time, and he'd even just upset the sport's next big thing in Vitor Belfort. And finally, it seemed the UFC had a heavyweight champion they could hang their hat on. But little did they know, Couture had other plans, and they didn't include America. Chapter 2 lost in Japan. So as I mentioned above, when Coleman won the first championship, it was exactly what you would think, right? It was the bigger, stronger, and more physically imposing athlete. And steroids weren't even tested for back then. He looks like what central casting in Hollywood would pick to be the winner. But the thing is, he also managed to emerge at a time where brute strength was highly favored, especially in the West because there were no longer any submission specialists in the heavyweight division fighting for the title. Hoist Gracie was gone, and so was Ken Shamrock. So when he won, he didn't have to worry about getting submitted. Same thing when you look back at Murray Smith. He was a kickboxer, no submission credentials at all. In fact, that's partly why his record was so bad coming into the UFC because he lost to guys like Ken Shamrock and Boss Rutten and Pancras because he didn't know anything about submissions. So it was an odd time in the West where Coleman, Smith, and Couture essentially didn't have to deal with any submission specialists. 
And so this brings us back to UFC Japan when Couture had won the championship for Maurice. The UFC had already been entered into the dark ages of the sport as it had already been banned in New York, removed from many pay-per-view carriers, and essentially couldn't afford to pay their athletes like the blossoming fight circuit in Japan could. In fact, Pride One had just debuted two months before UFC Japan when Couture won his title and had sold nearly 48,000 tickets. In contrast, the largest UFC event had only sold about 13,000. Even then, the UFC was already waning and ticket sales were suffering, so they weren't even close to 13,000 by that time. So then what did Couture do? He promptly signed with a Japanese promotion in Valley Tudo, Japan. The title was ultimately stripped from Couture, but linearly, and this is important, it was retained by Couture. Nobody had beaten him. And his first bout was against the Japanese-American submission specialist, Ensign Inoue. In this legendary matchup, it was immediately clear that Couture was a long way from home. Ensign refused to engage on the feet at all, repeatedly kicking him from the ground with a surprising amount of power. Couture then was forced to engage on the ground and in just over a minute and a half in round one was forced to tap to Ensign's armbar. Chapter 3, Title Entropy Now fully entrenched in the jaws of chaos that would later set the precedent for future championship clauses in fighter contracts, the de facto UFC champion for all intents and purposes had just lost in yet another huge upset to Ensign Inoue at Valet Tudo Japan 1998. So following suit, Ensign promptly moved on to a new organization Pride Fighting Championships at their fifth event, first taking on Soichi Nishida. About that was quickly ended with Ensign winning via rear naked choke at just 24 seconds in round one. The guy really shouldn't have been in there. But it was the next bout where he had his first true test as the lineal heavyweight champion. It was at this time that Pride held its first open weight tournament, the 2000 Grand Prix. Mark Kerr was a training partner of Mark Coleman that represented an evolved MMA wrestler with even more power and one that embraced submissions and also competed in several ADCC submission bouts. And thankfully, this fight was masterfully captured in the HBO documentary appropriately titled after Kerr's nickname, The Smashing Machine. Sure enough, Kerr was able to dominate the fight with ground and pound through completion by unanimous decision. And so as a result, Kerr advanced to the next round of the tournament where he was matched with the pro wrestling Japanese star, Kazuyuki Fujita. And Kerr was the definite favorite. And it went down exactly like how you would expect someone with a nickname like the Smashing Machine would go. Kerr was dominating Fujita with his incredible power, but Fujita's nickname was also appropriate in Ironhead because he absorbed an overwhelming amount of punishment, with several clean knees landed directly to the head. And by the end of these exchanges, Kerr was gassed and paralyzed mentally, unable to move. Essentially, he couldn't defend himself and was defeated by ground and pound and Fujita's superior cardio that outlasted Kerr to a unanimous decision. But sure enough, Fujita had to forfeit his next match in the tournament semifinal, which was to take place against Mark Coleman. So Coleman went on to defeat his remaining foe, Igor, by knees to the head and astoundingly found himself in the enviable position of then holding the open weight pride belt and the lineal title he had lost three years earlier to Marie Smith. Back to square one. But again, however, this was short-lived when he lost to Minotaur Noguera at Pride 16. Chapter 4. The Pride Era Leads to Limbo Just a couple of months after beating Mark Coleman, Noguera fought Heath Herring for the inaugural Pride Heavyweight Championship, and for the first time in its history, the lineal heavyweight title enjoyed some stability. Big Nog was far and away the best heavyweight the world stage had ever seen at this point. He began crushing absolutely everyone in his division, and even outlasted the insanity that was Bob Sapp in front of over 90,000 fans at Pride Shockwave 2002. And trust me, this wasn't the Bob Sapp you might know today. He was vicious at this point in time. 
It's unbelievable what Noguera withstood. The champ was here to stay as the world saw its first true prestige heavyweight champion. Enter Fedor Emelianenko. The incredible talent he possessed just couldn't be denied despite everything Noguera had done to this point. Fedor shocked the world and did the unthinkable. Dominated the best heavyweight champion from bell to bell and even did it again at Pride Shockwave 2004. And this time, the perceived dominant new champion was fully realized. All the way until Pride closed its doors in 2007. Beating the likes of Mark Coleman, Randleman, Fujita, Mark Hunt, and what was considered the fight of the decade against Mirko Krokop. Fedor was on top of the fighting world, and it seemed the UFC was the natural progression for him. But for whatever reason, that fell through at every turn. Dana White's word versus Fedor's, essentially. And we could go into that, but that's really enough for another video entirely. The truth is, we don't know. It's hard to know what from Dana is smoke and mirrors, and Fedor was extremely vague in the reasons he gave why he didn't sign. Either way, what did end up happening is he fought in Bodog, strangely against Matt Lindland, Back again in Japan with another odd pairing against Hongman Choi, besting the likes of Tim Sylvia and Andre Arlovsky in Affliction before finally arriving in Strikeforce. Just like that, it had been six years since capturing the title from Noguera in Japan, and here he was in the United States fighting on national television with CBS. The UFC itself had not even accomplished this by that time, being on a major network. The Fox deal didn't happen until about two years later at the end of 2011. And despite being tested early by Brett Rogers with heavy ground and pounds, Fedor managed to end the fight in shocking highlight reel fashion. Chapter 5, The Return. On one of the most memorable nights in the sports history, June 26, 2010, the massive underdog who had been ejected from the UFC after his violent loss to Junior Dos Santos, Fabrizio Verdum rendered fans entirely speechless when he submitted Fedor Emelianenko by triangle choke just a minute and nine seconds into the very first round. Finally, the lineal title changed hands, and it was during this time that plunged it back into chaos once again. Verdum lost his very next fight against Alistair Overeem, and for an entirely separate reason, the world was shocked again when Dana White announced the purchase of its biggest rival since Pride, Strikeforce. Immediately, they began buying out contracts, and one of the very first to be acquired was Overeem's. He was essentially plucked out of the heavyweight Grand Prix happening at the time, and by the end of the year was matched up against Brock Lesnar at UFC 141. It was a fight he easily won though by taking advantage of the wrestler with little stand-up ability, while Overeem was in fact a K1 champion. This earned him an immediate title shot against Junior Dos Santos, the current champion at the time, finally unifying the lineal championship Mark Coleman had lost nearly 15 years prior to Maury Smith. But sure enough, the rampant speculation that Alistair was taking performance-enhancing drugs was confirmed when he failed a drug test leading up to the JDS fight. So when he came back to UFC 156 to fight Bigfoot Silva, he was already noticeably deflated, looked totally different. Even still, he was the heavy favorite but lost viciously by knockout to Bigfoot. So upon winning, Silva earned his title shot and rematch against Cain Velasquez, which he quickly lost. But at last, the lineal title was again in the hands of a current UFC champion. And Cain himself appeared to be unstoppable after closing out his great trilogy in dominant fashion by TKOing JDS at UFC 166. But by this time, Verdun was back in the UFC and had earned his title shot against Kane, becoming a much more confident striker and well-rounded fighter than he previously was. And despite being delayed several times, it finally happened. But somehow, some way, Kane, who was known for being the cardio machine, lost his belt to Verdum by first gassing out and then getting submitted in round three by guillotine. It's reported that he didn't adjust himself to the high altitude in Mexico City, where Verdum was preparing there for at least a month leading up to the fight. But even still, not what anyone would have guessed looking at it all on paper. And since 
Since then, between all of Kane's injuries, the two never did get a chance to rematch for the title, which left an opening for a new challenger to emerge. This arrived in the form of Stipe Miocic, a fighter born from Croatian immigrants in Euclid, Ohio, and a Division I wrestler from Cleveland State with only two losses to his name. Verdum was certainly the favorite at this time, though, holding wins over the greatest heavyweights of all time, but in baffling fashion at UFC 198 in front of 45,000 Brazilian fans, Verdum abandoned his guard and rushed Stipe wildly, and just over two and a half minutes into the very first round, Stipe became the world champion with his knockout win. Since then, Stipe has knocked out Alistair Overeem and avenged his loss to JDS by TKO. So now we find ourselves in a familiar spot, a wrestler once again at the championship helm, the lineal title unified with the UFC heavyweight title. And he now has two title defenses to his name, which means Stipe joins a long list of UFC heavyweight title holders, none of which have ever been able to defend more than two times. Not Couture, not Sylvia, not Mir, Lesnar, JDS, Kane, no UFC champion ever. And on January 20th, 2018, Stipe has the opportunity to make history by defending his belt three times. And if I'm being honest at all about this, I think he has the worst opponent possible. A young, incredible, powerful knockout king in Nganu that pushes the limits of knockout power the sport has ever seen. If he can win, he could be the greatest heavyweight champion of the modern era. But as of the time of this recording, Stipe is actually the betting underdog for the fight. Francis, on the other hand, has the opportunity to capture the title and become what many are predicting as a global star if he can accomplish that task in any way resembling the wins he's accrued to this date. It's personally the most excited I've been since the Kane JDS trilogy for a heavyweight title matchup. Hey, what's up, guys? I have two really quick questions for you. Number one being, who do you think is going to win that fight? Do you think it's going to be Stipe? Do you think it's going to be Nganu? Really curious. Let me know down in the comments. I'm going to go ahead and make a prediction and say I think it's Nganu. Um, I love Stipe. I think he's super awesome. If he wins, I will be more than happy to eat my words. But I'm curious to, curious to get your guys' thoughts. Who do you think is going to win that? And then the other question is, I'm working on a 2017 list for the best up-and-coming fighters. Uh, maybe the ones that most people don't know about. I'm curious to see what you guys would think your top 10 would be, or even just some notable names. So if you could let me know in the comments below, I'll be making that before the end of the year. So uh, whatever you guys leave, I'll take that into account. I can't guarantee I'll get everything you guys put down, but I'll at least consider it. And maybe you guys will catch me off guard. We're like, oh, I, I wasn't thinking about that one. So... Uh, you guys can actually help craft uh, the next list uh, for, you know, the end of the year. So um, appreciate that, guys. And um, as always, make sure to like and subscribe. We got more and more content coming every day. Um, so really appreciate you guys taking the time to watch. And we'll uh, see you at the next video. Have a great day.